1977, Larry Yaklin shares a story of when he and three friends decided to visit the Bell Witch House and Cave in Adams, Tennessee, long rumored to be haunted by a witch. To make it extra scary, since he and his buddies were trying to impress their escort, they arrived at the abandoned home in the wee hours of morning. They parked some distance from the home and walked toward it. They could only make out the road by the two thin, worn-down tire tracks in the mud on either side of a strip of grass. Once the dilapidated home came into view, thanks to the glow from the moon, all members of the party were a bit hesitant to get closer. Curiosity for the win. The house was a shadow of its former self. The door barely held on by its hinges. Wet and decay tinged the air. The soft wind made the slightest whistling sound as it forced its way through the open cracks of rotting wood. The four entered the house cautiously. The air was heavy and thick. The moon cast shadows that the imagination could sculpt in many ways. Larry and his friend most likely teased one another about who was more afraid and attempting to startle their dates into the safety of their arms. Gaping holes and broken boards made the floor of the entryway more of an obstacle course. Early had the exploration begun when they were stopped in their tracks, hearts beating wildly. They heard scuffling on the floor above them. They paused, hoping to explain away the sounds to animals, but the scraping turned to footsteps. And then the doors and windows slammed shut. They pushed through to the back door, making their escape. But once they were safe distance from the house, with nothing chasing them, Bravado got the better of them once again. Perhaps they paused looking to the dark shadows across an open field, but swallowed the fear they had felt only moments before. There's a cave entrance. This cave is said to be the witch's lair, but the group was determined to see for themselves. Prior to their reaching the mouth of the cave, they felt the temperature drop suddenly. Harsh whispers seemed to surround them on all sides as if the woods were closing in around them. They decided to abandon their quest and make a run for it back to the car as if their lives depended on it. All the way back down the long narrow path they ran and felt as if something was just at their heels. They dove into the car locking the doors behind them. Larry turned over the motor willing the car to come to life and aid them in their escape. He backed the car up and turned it around and it was then that it sounded like the car was surrounded and heavy hands banged against all sides. He shifted it into drive and sped off down the narrow paved road. Once they felt they were a safe distance, they pulled the car over in a well-lit gas station. One of the group noticed a handprint of mud just over the front left tire and it smeared all the way down the side of the car. Larry says, quote, I still tell the story of the Bell Witch. I'm not a believer in spirits and such, but something did happen at that house one August in 1977." End quote. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones.
John Bell and his wife Lucy moved from North Carolina with their nine children to the small town of Red River, Tennessee. Not a lot is known about his life before the move, but apparently after he wrote back to his family about his new perfect location and great opportunity for property, it wasn't long that anywhere from three to eleven other families, I think I read that three were actually his siblings, made the journey to Tennessee as well. John Bell himself was a cooper by trade, which is the term for a barrel maker, and also purchased a total of 320 acres in which to farm tobacco and corn using slave labor. The property edged the Red River, giving the crops plenty of fresh water, and he built his home on the bluffs with the scenic views of the slow-moving river below him. His wood-planked house with a rare second level, a porch that extended the width of the home, eventually grew as three more children were added to the crew. The crops were growing. The family was growing. John even became an elder at the Red River Baptist Church. It all seemed perfect. What they didn't know was that the land they'd purchased was either, according to legends as in stories or legends as in written documents, the ground was considered cursed or planted on top of an Indian burial ground. Either way, after 13 years of family bliss, all hell broke loose. The legend of the Bell Witch began in 1817. The evenings of the once quiet and peaceful property were soon interrupted with noises coming from the outside, such as scratching and knocking. They got louder, then began to disrupt the family's sleep. But everyone at this point was able to explain them away. Well, that would never do. The Bell family was about to discover that an unknown entity was about to make its mission known, the death of John Bell. The disturbances moved inside, grew louder, and demanded attention. Once the house was quiet and tucked in for the night, the witch would clock in for duty. The children would wake up screaming from their sleep, from fear of hearing whispers by their head. It sounded to them like rats were gnawing their way through the walls. There were footsteps and slamming of doors. There were high-pitched, faint sounds, harsh whispers and low growls, a bit unnerving and definitely causing a lack of sleep. But the spirit didn't seem to cause harm. Best just to ignore it. John's son, Robert William, journaled about much of the events in his youth. He wrote, quote, Father, believing it was some mischievous person trying to frighten the family, never discussed the matter in the presence of the younger children hoping to catch the prankster. Then, after the demonstration became known to all of us, Father enjoined secrecy upon every member of the family, and it was kept in the profound secret until it became intolerable. As the spirit became more bold, she began to actually abuse the family, tugging blankets from the bed and then escalating to slapping, pinching, and hair-pulling. Sometimes the witch would make the entire house shake as if it were an earthquake. This entity, once an equal opportunity poltergeist, soon focused her attacks on the head of the house, John Bell, and his young daughter, Betsy. Betsy was the first of the Bell children born on the farm of Tennessee. Her older brother, Robert William, wrote, quote, She was a light-hearted, romping lass whose roguish prettiness and mischievous glances made the hearts of the neighborhood boys go pity-pat, end quote. She apparently had a different effect on the witch. Poor Betsy felt the wrath of the witch almost nightly. 
At the time the witch singled her out, I believe she would have been in her early teens. The witch would tie her long braids to the bedpost as the child slept, and when she would wake in the morning, her body would be covered in fresh bruises. The witch would eventually become so brazen that the family could be looking at Betsy, hear a slap, and see the red handprint swell up on her porcelain white cheek and swear that no one was there. Robert William wrote, quote, The blows were heard distinctly, like the open palm of a very heavy hand, while the sting was keenly felt, end quote. Her body was beaten and bruised, and she had to fight for her life for every moment of rest. The family would report that Betsy's breath would sometimes become a pant and then stop completely for several minutes until she was able to gasp for air again, and then she would faint. The children believed that the witch would either use Betsy's bodies or other bodies to gain strength and to have an outlet to commit the terrible tortures. Once the children would wake up from the faint, they had no recollection of what had transpired. This was an entity that needed attention. As her powers grew, she could be heard talking, singing, laughing, and cursing at the family, and no longer confined by the darkness of night. Eventually, John Bell knew he needed some help. He employed his neighbor, James Johnston, to come to his home and not only confirm that the whole family wasn't crazy, but offer a possible suggestion of what might help. James and his wife obliged and offered to stay the night at the home to see what would happen, if anything. The bell witch that the family referred to as Kate didn't disappoint. Kate would stomp and screech about the property, showing off her demonic powers by throwing things and trying to intimidate the new guests. The Johnstons were shocked and surprised by the witch as they attempted to pray for the family and the property. The witch would mock them, stomp around trying to drown them out, or join in. Kate the witch was perfectly comfortable quoting scripture and singing hymns. At one point, the witch spoke word for word the sermon that had taken place at two different churches, 13 miles apart. The Johnstons, along with the Bells, tried for two weeks to send the witch away. It wasn't until one night Johnston stood on a bench and demanded that the witch cease and desist. The house was quiet. The family rejoiced. They slept in peace. They ate in peace. Life could go back to normal. Now, you don't believe that for a moment, do you? You would be right. She did give the family a break for a couple of weeks, but when she returned, she was more angry and more powerful than before. Oh, she was just getting started. Bell and Johnston decided a committee would need to be formed. We've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. 
Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now, real history, not just the dates and battles, and I've discovered that others do too. So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. People of the community were invited to help the suffering bells. Their first job was just to watch the house to make sure it wasn't someone playing tricks. It was soon discovered that it was so much more than just pranks. The witch was eager to perform. Some of the neighbors were frightened away, never to set foot on the land again, and as the word spread, the home was soon visited by people from several states away wanting to see the witch. She was happy to oblige. She would whistle and pull up fierce winds with all the attention her powers would grow. The crowds were throwing out questions wanting to relieve their curiosity, but she refused to speak in a manner they could understand. She would growl low or she would scream at high decimals and it sounded as if she were speaking but not in a language anyone could understand. The family tried to sneak Betsy out while the witch was paying attention to the crowds, but Kate was able to taunt Betsy at whichever neighbor's home and entertain and frighten the masses. It was when Betsy was finally returned home that the witch addressed the crowd. It is documented that she said, quote, I am the spirit from everywhere, from heaven, hell, and earth. I'm in the air, in houses, any place, at any time. I was created millions of years ago. That is all I will tell you, end quote. But that is not all she had to tell them. She enjoyed taunting and attacking the pastors and preachers and the praying masses. She could argue all viewpoints of the Bible and quote scripture forwards and backwards. The witch could argue any denomination, scripture, hymns, and would pierce the air with a high-pitched scream to distract those who would pray for her removal. One of the stories that has been told and retold about the torments young Betsy had to undertake was that the witch was always poking her. She felt she was being stabbed with pins, and often stick pins would be found on her bed or pillowcase or where she had been sitting. A doctor came to the home and offered Betsy a tonic. She was instructed to drink, and within moments it made her very ill. Her body convulsed and she began to vomit. A river of liquid and stick pins was expelled from her small frame. Her mother and the doctor could do nothing but stare as her uncontrollable heating produced more and more pins on the floor. As Betsy was able to draw in a gulp of air, the witch's laughter filled the walls of the house, taunting her and challenging her to drink more of the medicine. John Bell was under the hateful watch of the witch as well. She took her attentions from the child for a brief time to ignite her hatred on the patriarch of the family. John Bell was aging quickly. 
He was in his late sixties, and the witch tormented him almost as much as his daughter. John tried to push through the abuse, but as the witch would swell up his tongue, making it hard to breathe, eat and swallow, he would feel more and more beaten down. John's body would have spasms and seizures, and he would lose control of his facial muscles. He eventually had to take to his bed, but the witch devoted all of her time to taunt and curse over him so he could get no rest. She would vow to kill him over and over again. He was weary, but he was thankful that the witch was focusing her attention on him instead of his daughter. He couldn't hold out much longer. On December 20th, 1820, John Bell died in his sleep. Many accounts blame his death on a vial of poison, and the witch was happy to take the credit for his death. Scientifically speaking, it may not have been anything supernatural at all. Bell's symptoms of his final week could have been indications of many medical problems, or it could have been poison. But the only thing we can be sure of was the ceaseless gloating and laughter of the witch. No matter what claimed his life, she was all about celebrating. John Bell was finally at rest, but could not have a decent funeral or burial without the witch cackling and laughing. The witch would howl and sing and screech through the entire process, but when the service finally came to an end, there was silence. She may have been quiet, but she wasn't quite finished yet. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. In 1821, a schoolmate of Betsy's had proposed marriage to her. His name was Joshua Gardner. She had accepted, and it seemed like all of their troubles with the witch were behind them. The witch, however, was not the least bit happy about this arrangement, and came back to let the couple know all about it. It was said that she followed them around from place to place and would give them no rest. She would switch up her tactics and beg Betsy not to marry him. When she explained that she was going to anyway, the witch was enraged and the vicious attacks began once again. Robert Williams wrote, quote, This vile unknown devil, torturer of human flesh that preyed upon the fears of people like a ravenous vulture, spared her not, but rather chose her as a shining mark for an exhibition of its wicked stratagem and devilish tortures, and never did it cease to practice upon her fears, insult her modesty, stick pins in her body, pinching and bruising her flesh, slapping her cheeks, disheveling and tangling her hair, tormenting her in many ways until she surrendered that most cherished of hope which animates every young heart, End quote. Betsy finally broke off her engagement with Joshua Gardner. She later married her former teacher, who, interestingly enough, had to wait until his wife passed away before he could marry his much younger student. Coincidence or witch interference? Who knows, but in 1824, Betsy and Richard Powell were married and moved away to Mississippi. Betsy Powell went on to live until the ripe age of 88, and even though all but two of her children passed away at early ages, most before the age of 12, 
She claimed to have lived a good life, all things considered. Talk of the witch was never allowed in her home. The bell witch must have been pleased that she completed both tasks she set out to achieve, the death of John Bell and the disillusion of Betsy and Joshua's engagement. Her work here was done. Before taking her leave to who knows where, she announced that she would return in seven years' time, which she did. On this next visit, she focused on John Bell Jr. This visit, apparently not so much cruel and vicious harassment, but an exchange of information. Kate would talk with John Jr. for hours on end for three days. She spoke of the past, the present, and the future. She told him the things she saw before leaving once again. She promised she would return in 107 years, and, if you've been keeping track, that would bring us to 1935. Leaving it to the other researchers, their notes seemed to say that nothing really happened in 1935 that would bring attention that the witch had returned. Although every descendant of the original Bell family has blamed all of their tragedies on the Bell witch, even though death and tragedy is part of all of our lives, but, to be fair, they're the only ones that get to use the witch card. It's my thinking that she did come back, just not in such a big way, and, apparently, is still quite present there today. The hauntings and the stories of the Bell Witch are so well documented that it can hardly be ignored or brushed off as folklore or a scary campfire story. This is one of the only hauntings where the stories stay consistent across the board. I believe three members of the actual Bell family wrote books on the subject, only one of the immediate family, and I don't believe his was published officially, it was just his journals. The story of the Bell Witch has gone beyond books to movies, musicals, videos, documentaries, and of course, podcasts. Today, the grounds are available for tours. It's still a popular destination, and if you still want to stick around after the tour, there's a canoe rental option as well. Spooks and floats, who could ask for more? The owners have rebuilt a replica of the original home, and there is a cave on the property also that is said to be haunted, and according to stories, the Bell Witch is still having a great time. Those who have shared their tales of interacting with the presence believe that the stories are real. There are claims that she speaks full sentences, hits, pinches, trips, whispers, and you can sometimes hear her high-pitched voice singing deep within the cave. She is not shy about letting you know if you are welcome or not. Stories of haunted encounters go all the way back to the 1940s. As usual, I tried to keep with as many facts as I could find and sift through the fantastical. What initially caused the Bell Witch to seek out this family, no one can really say for sure. But if you have a few more moments, I can fill you in on some of the additional research I found. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out. A few theories came up on the why and two most prevalent was the grounds itself was cursed prior to the Bells breaking ground and taking up residence, and then of course there's the popular desecrating of the old Indian burial ground. Now there have been bones that are believed to be Native American, 
that have been found on the property and then later stolen. But interestingly enough, I also found this little gem of information in a book from the 1860s called The History of Tennessee by Albert Goodpasture. It's a documented as a, quote, spiritual awakening in the area. In reading the excerpt in the churches of the Red River Congregation of 1799, a manifestation accosted members of the church. The exorcism involved piercing screams and, quote, the subject would fall to the earth and appear as one dead, end quote. And this was written by member John McGee, quote, The jerks sometimes affected a single member and the whole body. If the head alone was affected, it would be jerked backwards and forward from side to side with such rapidity that the features could not be distinguished, end quote. He would go on to say, quote, Saints and sinners, the wise and ignorant, alike were subject to these exercises with their accompanying manifestations of singing, shouting, crying, leaping, and dancing at the church, at home, on the road, and in the forest, end quote. With this happening in 1799, and the Bell Witch not making her grand entrance until 1817, it seems to give weight to the theory that the land in question was a bit more cursed than they might have remembered. It could just be me, but these excerpts seems to be that the Bell Witch was just warming up for her future shenanigans. And the question that I had that took me way down the rabbit hole of research was, what did the Bell Witch tell John Bell Jr. during those three days of conversation? After days and days of research, all I found was a small, thin book written by Charles Bell, and I'm not really sure how he's related, but it was written in the 1930s that said, The witch warned that trouble would come to see the new America. There would be war. There would be much blood and death, and in the end, the Negroes would be set free. And she went on to say that America would grow into a world power and would have to defend itself. And apparently, she gave a date for World War II that was only off by four years. So she described the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. She also said that the world would end with a great heat getting hotter and hotter until it explodes. So, there you go. The witch has spoken. So the good news is there's nothing in there about a third world war, just the ending of the earth. Thank you for joining me this week for another episode of Bag of Bones. If you'd like to join me over on the socials, I'm most often poking around on Facebook, or you can reach out on my website, elizabethbougeret.com. I'd be so grateful if you could leave a five-star review and rating on any of the podcast platforms you listen from, as it helps to get this podcast in front of others who just might like it. But our best boost is, of course, word of mouth. And I thank you for any and all of the above. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I'll meet you here next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed.
To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.